This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. It's June 2022 and we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses with a series of podcasts exploring Anthony Burgess's love of the novel. In this episode, Andrew Biswell of the Burgess Foundation talks to David Collard about his book, Multiple Joyce, a study of Joyce's cultural legacy over 100 essays that often reveal unexpected connections and insights into what Joyce and his work mean for modern audiences. David Collard is a writer, reviewer, researcher, editor and broadcaster. His writing regularly appears in the Times Literary Supplement and Literary Review and he has appeared on BBC Radio 3 and 4. His first book was About a Girl, a reader's guide to Amy McBride's A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. He is currently working on books about W.H. Auden, The New Review, and a memoir about his upbringing as a reluctant Jehovah's Witness. We begin this episode with David reading an extract from the essay Burgess Borges in Multiple Joyce which is out now from Sagging Meniscus Press. After the memorial service for the poet laureate John Betjeman in November 1984, a nervous Philip Larkin approached the critic Cyril Connolly and blurted out, Sir, you formed me. Larkin was referring to the wartime literary journal Horizon which Connolly had edited for its complete run of 120 monthly issues between 1939 and 1950. I met Anthony Burgess twice, very, very briefly. It's truer to say that our paths crossed. And on both occasions I wanted to stammer the same heartfelt admission, but fortunately did not. And that was because I was, on both occasions, rendered speechless by his formidable literary reputation and the Baroque elaboration of his comb-over. Polymath essayist, critic, cultural pundit, linguist, screenwriter, journalist, chat-show stalwart, eloquent champion of Joyce and other modernist authors, composer, which he always insisted was his true vocation, and much else besides. Burgess was the last great public intellectual of his generation, and one might gloomily add the last great public intellectual full-stop, at least in Britain. He loomed like an irascible schoolmaster over my impressionable late adolescence, both as a prolific author and, more generally, a powerful and respected cultural arbiter. I gobbled up his novels in the local library and sought out the Observer newspaper every Sunday to read his wonderfully peppery reviews. I'd make a point of reading books which featured Burgess's encomia on their covers, and there seemed to be literally hundreds of these. And I looked out, watchfully, for his regular appearances on the telly, usually smoking a cheroot, sporting that astonishing comb-over, which seemed to begin at the hip, and always talking, talking, talking. He was a polyglot citizen of the world, erudite and authoritative, and seemed to me quite fantastically cool. This, I thought, is how a writer talks. Hair aside, I wanted to be like him and talk like that. The notorious Roger Lewis biography in 2002 both nailed and skewered Burgess, and I wondered at the time whether his reputation would ever fully recover. Lewis developed such a bilious loathing for his former literary hero that the book amounted to little more than a 500-page hatchet job, describing Burgess as lubricious, sentimental, callous, superficial, crapulous, arcane, 
laborious, sanctimonious, and, quote, essentially a fake. And that was just the prologue. Perhaps Lewis should have stuck to the books and ignored the messy life. This hatchet job was also, alas, an absolutely compelling page-turner, not for what it told me about Burgess, and I remain an admirer to this day, but for what it revealed about his biographer, whose loathing for his quondam literary hero, a man he'd spent twenty years of his life researching, was clearly pathological and without limit. Lewis's level of invective at times attained a kind of epiphanic serenity. According to the reviewer Jonathan Bate in The Telegraph, the book was, quote, infuriatingly repetitive, vain and self-regarding, clever and opinionated, bloated and chaotic, quirkily learned, and possibly fraudulent. Like Burgess, you might say. In 1982, I was in Dublin for the Joyce Centenary celebrations, and that was the year, and the place, where Burgess met his near namesake, the Argentinian writer George Louis Borges, in Davy Burns Moral Pub at 21 Duke Street, Dublin 2, the place, of course, where Bloom has his lunch of a gorgonzola cheese sandwich and a glass of burgundy. Rumour has it that the two men chatted together in Anglo-Saxon, which I think must be baloney. I happened, as I say, to be in Dublin at the time, and even made it to Davy Burns at one point, missing this titanic literary encounter by a matter of hours. Missed a lot of other things in the course of three eventful days in Dublin, and I suppose this is as good a point as any to say something about Irish pubs, or rather, a very different proposition, Irish theme pubs. And I'll leave it there. The essay goes on to look at the cultural presence of Irish pubs around the world and how they relate to Joyce and his drinking and Ulysses. And I end with a description of the mock-up studio pub in the short film Anthony Burgess made about Finnegan's Wake. David, welcome to the Burgess Foundation podcast. I thought we might begin by talking about Anthony Burgess himself and then Burgess as a presence in your book. I understand that you encountered Burgess a couple of times. Uh, maybe you could tell us something about those meetings. Well, um, thank you, Andrew. It's a great pleasure to be here. And in a sense of me, this is double debt repaid to, to Burgess and to Joyce. As far as meeting the man, I think meeting is perhaps too dignified a term. Our paths crossed on two occasions, once in Manchester in the 70s. And I've got the dimmest memory of a, a, a shindig, some literary shindig at the Granada Studios in Manchester. A lot of people there, including Burgess, visibly there. He sort of stood out in a crowd, taller than one might expect, and boomier <laughs> than most people. Um, that, that's it. That's, that's my first encounter. But later on, in 1981, I remember this very clearly because I'd just read Earthly Powers in paperback, and uh, I met a couple of friends for lunch in um, Durrance Hotel in Marylebone, very nice hotel, behind the Wallace Collection. Um, and waiting in the bar, my friends to turn up. I had a big observer in cellophane. Newspapers were huge, thick articles in those days on Sundays. And um, became aware of, of a couple sitting at the bar. It was Burgess and, as I later realised, his wife, um, who struck me as being especially shabby, but I recognised him straight away. Um, and kept my head down, but my ears, so to speak, were on stalks. He was murmuring solicitously to her and treating her with enormous deference and courtesy, which I rather liked. And um, 
An American came in. I, re I remember him very clearly because he was dressed from head to toe in seersucker. <laughs> Preposterously. And said to the room in general, and no one in particular, the barman behind the bar, me and Burgess and Liana, a couple of other people. Yeah, can anyone tell me the way to Queen's Club? Meaning the private tennis club in West London. Um, in the same bit of London where, of course, Kenneth Toomey lives in Earthly Powers. And Burgess, without even really engaging the chap, um, I think he said, I, I tend to approach this sort of thing empirically, which is not a great opener for directions, and then gave incredible pinpoint directions. Uh, you turn right out of the hotel, cross Manchester Street, right into Chiltern Street, past the fire station, up to Baker Street, where you enter and take a train from Platform One, and so on, you see, to Hammersmith. Um, and I was listening to that. And the Americans seemed a bit amused, but took it on board and left. And I wanted to point out that on Sundays, the Chiltern Street entrance to Baker Street Station was closed. It was only open on weekdays and during rush hours, but I didn't like to interrupt. Uh, and then my friends arrived and we went for lunch, and I was craning around, rubbernecking, hoping that Burgess and, and his missus would <laughs> join us in the restaurant and possibly we could, we could forge a lasting friendship. That never happened. But I do remember this clearly because I'd just seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the two cultural moments, Earthly Powers in paperback and Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, both informed my tastes for years to come in terms of Hollywood blockbusters. I'd only ever watched art house movies really until then at the Arvin Cinema in Manchester. And and airport novels because ultimately Earthly Powers was an attempt by Joseph Burgess, I think, to create a, a big blockbuster airport novel and very successfully, I think. So that's it. Those are my two momentous encounters with, with Anthony Burgess. Hardly worth sharing. So thank you for listening. Burgess, as we know, wrote two big books about Joyce. Here Comes Everybody, a general introduction to all the works, and, and Joyce Prick, a study of Joyce's language. He also adapted Ulysses as a radio play for the Joyce Centenary in 1982. But perhaps you could tell us something about how you've encountered Burgess's writing about Joyce. Well, if I could step back and say my first encounter with Burgess as a writer was was a book which is certainly not his best, but remains my favourite, perhaps because it was my first exposure. And that's nothing like The Sun, um, which an English teacher at my school, noticing that I was struggling with Shakespeare, resentfully struggling, said, you might enjoy this. And I did. And after that, I, I gobbled up all the Burgess novels I could find in the local library, um, and especially the Malayan trilogy and the Enderby books, and got onto Joyce. Uh, and including the the marvelous um, shorter Finnegan's Wake, um, with its its terrific um, summaries and introductions and notes, which um, was was a really good portal for me. So I, I I grew up with with Burgess being Joyce's representative on earth, so to speak. He was a great champion and and in a rather old fashioned way, a man of letters and a gatekeeper and a cultural arbiter. He was everywhere when in the seventies and eighties when I was growing up, and I was an impressionable, pretentious young man and. And seeing him on the telly, especially, um, he struck me as being how a writer should should comport himself, <laughs> speaking in eloquent paragraphs with with a certain authority. He had tremendous eloquence, and these days we don't value eloquence; we value loquacity and sincerity. Um, he looks rather old-fashioned now. This performance as a great writer, but that I feel still find that very attractive. And he was a sort of role model of sorts um, for me as a student, to the extent in Manchester. Um, I'd go to Kendall's and buy little black cheroots, sand toy cheroots, 
which I, I don't believe he smoked that brand, but it, it was as close as you could get to, Man to, to Malayan cheroots in Manchester in the 70s. Um, and so to an extent, he informed my tastes. He formed me, as I'll mention later on um, in, in the passage from my book, Multiple Joys. So he, he was a way in, and not just for me, I think, but for many people, not just to Joyce, but to literature, um, but particularly to Joyce. Um, he made Joyce appear not easy, but worthwhile. Yes. You say that Burgess haunts the pages of multiple Joyce. And how far, when you were writing the book, were you conscious of trying to write in the spirit of Burgess's own James Joyce books? That's a very good question. I hadn't thought of it, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I didn't want to be the village explainer. My, uh, my approach is not in multiple Joyce to address hypothetical sceptics who need to be won over or who need to be reassured that Joyce is really not that difficult if you just put your mind to it. I wanted in some ways to re-mystify Joyce and Ulysses in particular and to pull it back a bit from the well-meaning populists. Um, I think Joyce in general, Ulysses in particular, is not for everybody, but it is and should be for anybody. And there's a difference. There should be no barriers to access, but you can't force feed people stuff like this. This is this is high modernism. This is serious art. And Burgess was quite pragmatic about this. I like his cell in A Short of Finnegan's Wake, in which he insists that this is you know, the funniest book you'll ever read. Um, I always find if, if you have to assert something like that, however, it may not stand up to close scrutiny. <laughs> Things like that should be self-evident. Um, but um, Burgess was always a very plausible advocate it seemed to me. He knew what he was talking about. Uh, and part of the appeal also, of course, is that he wasn't part of the establishment. He wasn't Oxford or Cambridge. He was from the North, um, relatively humble origins, studied at Manchester. Yeah, all these were pluses. And I think what, um, amongst others, Roger Lewis, the biographer, see as flaws in, in, in Burgess are very much what his admirers like me see as qualities. It's the same thing. <laughs> Um, um, it's, I think it was Henry James who said that first with favourite writers, they don't have flaws they only have qualities and some of those qualities may be quite troubling qualities but they are qualities nevertheless um, I'm rambling rather away from the subject but yes, Burgess was my way into Joyce Joyce doesn't lead you back to Burgess I'm afraid but, but um, he's, he's the lower slopes and I think one finds in Burgess the same relish for language um, the same ludic qualities that characterise you describe your approach as that of a literary hack. I mean, the line from your book, it put me in mind of Burdis's late essay, Confessions of the Hack Trade. But I wonder exactly what you meant by the term literary hack and more generally how you'd like people to approach your book. Yeah, it's a rather old-fashioned phrase, hack, isn't it? Redolent of Fleet Street and lunchtime old booze and the whole culture of, of um, hot press. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to think of myself as a literary hack in the sense that I write for money. And I, what I write about for the most part is, is, is literature in one form or another. Um, my approach in Multiple Choice wasn't to be academic. I have no claims to be <laughs> academic um, or even scholarly to that extent. I, I wanted to do something quick and dirty, rough and ready during the pandemic lockdown. I couldn't get out, couldn't leave the neighbourhood, couldn't go to libraries or archives. So I worked under a kind of involuntary constraint that turned out to be a sort of liberation because I could go online, and this is what I did for a year, enter James Joyce plus another search term and mine that seam. And pretty much every time you get a result and a good one. So I'd enter James Joyce plus Kafka, James Joyce plus Kierkegaard, James Joyce plus Kardashian. And every time you'd get not just one odd backwatery thing, but a whole bunch of interesting stuff that 
only the internet would make possible. So these 100 essays, or 98 of them, I should say, because two are written by guests, were the result of a lockdown, a lack of any kind of heavyweight scholarship behind me. Um, I'm a featherweight Joycean, really, um, but an enthusiastic one. But finding this non-academic way into Joyce, this way of doing a preliminary audit on the internet of, of, of Joyce's presence out there, was exciting and fascinating and like shooting fish in a barrel. I could write another 100 or 200 or 500 essays just limited by the search terms. That There was only one thing I, I drew a blank on using this approach, James Joyce plus click. And that was um, Susie Quattro. I grew up a child of the 70s and I kind of like Susie Quattro. I don't know, you know what conceivable overlap there might be. And there was literally nothing. There was nothing connecting James Joyce to the leather-clad, pint-sized rocker. Um, and I mentioned this in an interview the other day, which is online. And now, of course, if you enter James Joyce plus Susie Quattro, you're taken to the interview <laughs> in a kind of head-spinning, metatextual moment. So it's nice to know that's happening. But Joyce is metastasizing all the time. The links are happening. You can, you can get so much there. You might write a book in the same way about Anthony Burgess. There aren't quite as many citations online but it would be fun to do Anthony Burgess plus and see what comes up yeah well he does have opinions about almost everything as we're discovering as we catalogue his journalism it's interesting too your approach is is quite unlike what Burgess did with Here Comes Everybody where he felt rather oppressed by the weight of Joyce scholarship and he took himself away to his house in the country and and sat down purely with Joyce's text with no other critical commentaries and and I suppose Here Comes Everybody is a a detailed response to those books. Now, you've written about Joyce as the modern writer who maybe more than any other has permeated or infiltrated world culture. And uh, I'm sure you'll be familiar with Molly Bloom's Irish pub in Barcelona, for example. But what other examples did you find of this influence in popular culture and in the, the bigger world beyond the world of books? Yes, I, I don't know that particular pub, but I, I expect it like pretty much every other Irish theme pub. <laughs> and I've been to Irish theme pubs in the United States and Russia and come to that in Ireland. Um, and thank you for the implied flattery of saying my book resembles Here Comes Everybody. Yes, it is. It's not, a, it's not a, a, an, an antagonistic response to academia and, and scholarship. It's, it's, it was an alternative and I hope a, an affectionate one. Um, I don't have any scores to settle, and I'm not, not aligned to any particular practice when it comes to literary criticism. But um, what other things did I turn up? I suppose my investigation was prompted by the discovery in a def a now defunct toy warehouse in North London of an action figure, um, a punk, a tattooed punk merman in a wheelchair called Finnegan Wake. New to me, who is a, a character in an online and... Um, uh, TV cartoon series called Monster High, which had passed me by, but was hugely popular with its target demographic. And seeing that just triggered not an epiphany, but a kind of light bulb moment, saying, are there other examples of, of, of Joyce's cultural aura, the aura, as um, Butter Benjamin called it, of, of something that surrounds an artist and the work uh, and is informed by it, but isn't necessarily directly linked to it. If, if there's a, a plastic action figure called Finnegan Wake, who signifies something to, to kids of a certain generation more than the novel does, or even the ballad song, what else is out there? And I took that thought away from the toy warehouse and, and 
started tinkering around with the idea of a blog um, of Joycean cultural auras, like, as you say, pubs, toys, uh, fridge magnets, shower curtains, pyjamas, everything really seems to be commodified that you can possibly think of. And I start my book with a list of some of the Joycean cultural ephemera that might appeal to many of us, but has nothing much to do with his writing or indeed his life. The inspirational posters and, and straw boaters and that sort of thing. And then more seriously, things like sequels to Ulysses and fan fictions about Ulysses and the critical legacy and the websites. And there's uh, an essay on people who have Joyce tattoos, for example, which I think might come as a surprise to him, did to me. Um, and looking up, using the method I mentioned, I, I hit on Joyce plus pornography and went down a rabbit hole there, I can tell you. Um, not advised. There's, there's no end to it. You're limited only by your terms of reference. So every time I entered the most unlikely search term, something significant came up. Joyce plus Lego. Here's a fellow who's made a film of Ulysses using Lego. And it, yeah, it's not half bad either. It's, it's a very erudite take. It's, it's not just jerky Playmobil figures. He's really, he understands the novel and he's done many other classics using Lego animation. So that, again, a rather rambling response is there's no end to what I turned up. It's not all lightweight stuff, by the way. You know, I, I do dig into some of the more serious and um, intellectually respectful and respectable aspects of Joyce's cultural legacy. But there's a lot of fun to be had on the way. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about, one of the challenges of Joyce, it seems to me, as an English reader, is having to learn Irish or rather Anglo-Irish to, to get into his books. Now, I mean, that's not much commented on. It has been occasionally. It seems to be another reason why Joyce is important as a kind of cultural bridge between English or Anglophone literature and, and Irish literature, Irish culture. I just wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Oh, most definitely. Yes, the Hiberno-English of Joyce, and even more so Beckett, I think, is part of the attraction for me. Do we have to overcome similar resistances when, for example, reading Abdul Razak Gurna, <laughs> um, um, Tanzanian by birth, British by residence, Nobel Prize winner this year, as, as Nadine Doris has scrupulously failed to acknowledge? Um, I think we overcome not a gag reflex, but a certain amount of resistance when reading writers in translation or writers from other cultures writing in English. Um, but we willingly do that. We meet them halfway or more than halfway if, if our tastes incline that way. And with Joyce, there may be a greater distance to travel. I don't think it's so much the Irishness. It's when people reach a, come to a phrase like um, ineluctable modality of the visible that they throw the book across the room and, and pick up a Jeffrey Archer or Ag and Bite of Inwit. Now, growing up before the internet, if there were phrases, words or ideas in a book I didn't understand, I'd look them up in a dictionary or whatever. It doesn't take long to check Ag and Bite of Inwit to find out it means remorse. And then you've got that for the rest of your life. We all come across the phrase for the first time reading Ulysses. And depending on your nature, you either see that as an interesting challenge, an opportunity to enhance your vocabulary and knowledge and awareness of another culture, or, as I say, give up with a snort and think, oh, he's pulling my leg, or how dare he. But people who do that aren't really readers, are they? If you see what I mean. And it's even easier now to go online and check a phrase or word from Joyce because it's been glossed it's been glossed to, to its limits. And that applies to Finnegan's Wake as much as anything else. You, everything in Finnegan's Wake has now been glossed and broken down and explained, if, if that's your idea of fun. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Joyce is a bridge not only to Irish literature and Irish culture, he's a bridge to, shall we say, the aesthetic, 
the, the idea that art can have an absolutely defining central role to one's own existence. And in secular terms, it can replace the or fill the God-shaped gap that comes when you reject family, state, and religion. And I like the bravery of that. Well, all this talk of languages leads us to uh, A Short of Finnegan's Wake, which Faber published in 1966, Burdis's edition of Finnegan's Wake, containing a long introduction, which uh, titled what it, What's It All About? and a text which is reduced to about a third of the original uh, length. Um, I wonder what you make of that. Was it a mad undertaking, or does The Shorter Finnegan's Wake provide a useful function as an introductory volume? Well, I, I say as much in my book, um, in the middle essay, Essay 50, Confession, why I will never read Finnegan's Wake. I've read bits of it so many times that I can recite them from memory. Other bits remain untouched. Um, and for very odd personal reasons, I can't submit to Finnegan's Wake as fully as the author might expect. The short of Finnegan's Wake is a work of genius because Burgess read it so that we don't have to. Um, his introduction is exemplary. Um, it, it, really, you get all you need to know about Finnegan's Wake from Burgess's very lucid, straightforward introduction. And he's, he's at his best, I think, there as, as, a, as a village explainer and advocate. Um, and one can read A Shorter Finnegan's Wake without too much effort. One can't read Finnegan's Wake without putting an enormous amount of effort, years indeed. And what does one come away with at the end? Um, I'm not so sure. Clive James said that Finnegan's Wake was a book full of writing for people who can do nothing but read, which is very unfair. <laughs> but there's a grain of truth, at least in that. Um, I want I, Finnegan's Wake proves that I'm a lightweight Joycean. I can't. I've never read it from cover to cover. I don't think I ever will. Um, I can talk about it for hours at a stretch without repetition, deviation, or hesitation. But I'm, 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 I'm on the, I'm, I'm not on the committee, but I go to all the meetings if if I can use that phrase. <laughs> well, rather like you, Burgess, um, uh, I'm sure he'd read it, but he always talks about the same parts. He, he has a fondness whenever he was asked to hold forth on Finnegan's Wake uh, for giving a very detailed reading of page one. Um, uh, but also the, the the sections that he does include his, his kind of uh, highlights or greatest hits in the shorter edition. Beyond that, as we know, he also made a television program um, in 1973 titled "Lots of Fun at Finnegan's Wake," um, set in a, a mocked-up uh, Dublin pub. And it's clearly a television studio where he helps himself and, and pours a Guinness with the largest head anyone's ever seen. Um, what do you make of this 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 performance, this attempt to sort of bring Finnegan's Wake to the masses? Um, I've watched it several times, um, admiringly. I, there are so many things about it that make me laugh. I, I, he enters to the sound of a thunderclap um, in a bone-dry raincoat, which he takes off to reveal a sweat-soaked jacket underneath. As you say, he pours the pint inexpertly, so it's, it's about seven-eighths frothy head and, and an eighth stout um, and then sits down and just delivers what appears to be off the cuff, but is obviously pre-written, shall we say, predetermined. A, a brilliant, lucid, and uh, hugely enjoyable oddball take. And then delivers, doesn't he, the Ballad of Percy O'Reilly uh, in his inimitable style. And then then toddles off to the loo, and we hear a toilet flush, and he goes back out to the sound of another thunderclap. And all the time, the clock behind the bar is set to 11.32, which... Finnegan's Wake 
readers will know has a tremendous significance as a date, not a time. And I'm sure there are other Easter eggs in, in that short film, which was made, I think, for public service broadcasting or some sort of open university style educational program. So whether you're bringing it to the masses there, I'm not sure. I think it probably serves as confirmation rather than information to people who are predisposed to want to know what Burgess thinks of this book, if you see what I mean. Um, it's not much of a sell. I mean, if you, if you were a newcomer to Joyce, particularly in literature generally, I don't think you'd dash out and get a copy of Finnegan's Wake from the Gotham book market. <laughs> On the street, but it's one. It's a wonderful thing, you know. It's it's it's. Um, he assumes that you'll be interested. He doesn't address you as a hypothetical skeptic or, or someone who needs to be won over. He assumes that it's interesting. I like that. Um, I, I I like that 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 parity. He's addressing us as equals. He happens to know a lot more about this book than we are likely to, but he doesn't allow that to inform his approach, although he's at his usual kind of ex-cathedra judgmental best, which hasn't dated especially well, I'm afraid. He's never equivocal, is he, Burgess? And he never laughs. I've never seen him even smile at him, but I've never heard him laugh, have you? He doesn't often laugh, no. Um, he must have had great fun writing his books, I think. But in conversation, he's he's not a laugher. He, he, he doesn't engage with his interlocutors with laughs and bantering jokes and and uh, he doesn't chuckle he doesn't chuckle. He, he never he's very serious all the time um which is part of his chilliness i think in in public maybe that's the partly the the, the school teacher um wanting to tell you things um wanting to interrupt other people or, or sort of hold forth i think that that sort of pedagogical urge very much the 1950s grammar school master is always there and he he never really uh, sort of gives it up or, or feels that he wants to. Another question about uh, Burgess and Joyce. At the beginning of Here Comes Everybody, Burgess says he's writing for the amateur reader who is maybe put off by scholarship. And I wonder, what's your general opinion of Joyce scholars and Joyce biographers? Well, the scholars and the biographers, the, the few I've met and know are delightful. Uh, you know, and Richard Ellman, the great Joyce biographer, is one of the great biographers, full stop. Um, when it comes to the language of criticism, however, <laughs> and critical theory and so on, something very horrible happened in the 60s and 70s, and, and it's never been recovered. No one reads contemporary academic criticism, which used to be part of any any educated, cultivated person's reading matter. You know, in, in, up until the 70s, I think anyone with an interest in culture would probably read a bit of Liebes and read a bit of Ibsen and, and so on. There aren't so many gatekeepers and critics now anyway. But the language of criticism has become rebarbative and exclusive and opaque. And I don't want to sound like an old fart here because I'm all into theory and, and post-colonial studies and all the all the broken down elements of study which are now addressed. But I can't take much away from it myself. There's there's so little pleasure in the reading of it. Um, a lot of which appears to be almost AI generated and not read by a proofreader or a copy editor. It's so opaque. And I, I, I read a little, you know, dutifully, um, often with increasing agitation. Um, I do write for a general reader who's polite enough to express an interest. And I, I don't think my book would pass muster with the doctrinaire or the, the highbrow academic. They might, they might enjoy it. As I, as I said to someone, it's a book to read sitting on a dilapidated jakes surrounded by lime wash and cobwebs, just like Bloom. 
sitting above his rising smell in Ulysses. It's a book to dip into, 100 essays. You can read one a day for 100 days. Uh, so it's, 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 a, it's a problem. I, I, I like to think I write lucidly and readably, but also that I have a little bit of critical heft as a, as a hack, but someone who cares about what I'm reading and wants to share an enthusiasm. Um, so, yeah, I'm a, it, I don't know how you feel about contemporary literary criticism and how much of it you read, but a lot of it is simply unreadable. Mm. And I was wondering about your point with uh, Liebes and Empson, whether they had their contemporary equivalents. Um, I mean, maybe Eagleton, is his stuff published by Penguin these days. I mean, Harold Bloom now did. Uh, uh, but perhaps those kind of heavyweights, particularly in the younger generation, don't exist. The, the critics who are felt to be essential and, and whose work everyone felt an obligation to engage with in the middle of the last century. Yeah, James Wood strikes me as as close as we've got now, but he's he's closer to the New Yorker than the Criterion, if, if I could put it that way. Um, and he's a marvellous critic and a marvellous writer and, and perhaps the only one who circulates as a, as a, as a mainstream figure, um, having said that. Um, we don't have that sort of writing much anymore, and that sort of readership has disappeared in, in the age of social media. If Emerson were alive today, he'd have a he'd have a website and a blog, wouldn't he? And there'd be hundreds of types of ambiguity, and there'd be people submitting different types of ambiguity in the chat room. You mentioned the Richard Ellman biography of Joyce, uh, much admired by Burgess, of course. Um, he bought it on publication and reviewed the second edition in 1982. It's sometimes said that our image of Joyce has been distorted by Ellman, that we'd be better off reading Joyce's letters or the books he published. And one objection I've seen recently is that he relies too heavily on, on Joyce's brother Stanislaus as a source of information. Um, but I wonder, a broad question, I suppose, how, how useful or otherwise you'd found um, the, the Joyce biographies um, when thinking about your own writing about Joyce. Elman's remains for the time being, and is likely to remain definitive. It's you know, the source of every biography since. Um, but there are other takes, and and uh, the book I've read recently, which impressed me more than any other I've read in years, is Nula O'Connor's Nora, which is a, a novel about Nora Barnacle, Joyce's partner, Muse, eventual wife. And I was sceptical about such a project, thinking, A, like most snobbish Joyce people, you know, what she got to offer. They tend to tend to pity and despise her because she was central to his life, but didn't really communicate much of it after his death to anyone else. She didn't seem to recall much worth sharing with potential biographers. But Nora uh, by Nula O'Connor is, is brilliant. She knows her Joyce inside out and back to front. And within two pages, I was utterly convinced that, that this is the voice and sensibility of Nora Barnacle and what appealed to Joyce in her. Uh, a, a, a not especially educated woman, but an intelligent one, emotionally very intelligent, um, a terrific partner in so many ways, put up with a load of shit from an alcoholic husband and, and enabled him in all sorts of ways, and gets close to the domestic truth of Joyce's life, which Elman does not. Um, she gets close to the impact of his drinking in particular on, on the family. She gets close to the money problems, the endless difficulties of moving around, the peripatetic style of their life, the constant debt and worry and pregnancies. And 
which is wonderful. It, it, it gives gives you a sense of choice, which is nothing to do with choice, but to do with his circumstances. And I, I like that sort of thing very much. Um, Joyce, of course, is the main <laughs> the main character in his own life. And other books like Lucia by Alex Phoebe, which focus on the very troubled daughter, um, enrich our understanding of Joyce while not placing him at the centre. And I think this is this is good. Um, but he's he, like any human being; he's he's limitless. <laughs> one can one can find one particular aspect of Joyce to interrogate in great detail, and there's a book or a PhD in it. Um, just go online and put a, put in a search term, and you've got your PhD subject like that. Um, Joyce and Jürgen Habermas, bingo. Um, so, I, I I liked Nora so much because it was a novel, a hugely creative novel, but also deeply rooted in in empathy and understanding of Joyce's circumstances, and made me feel closer to him in a way. Um, I think with Joyce, of course, his fans, a bit like Burgess, are, are kind of unadulterated fans. We're zealots. We, we're almost frustrated that other people can't see how much there is to admire in the writers we like. Did you have any dealings with the Joyce estate in the course of your work and clearing the permissions for the book? Um, not with the Joyce estate, because since the... Um, the death of Stephen Joyce, um, that there's less obstruction going on. And because the work is now almost entirely in, in the public domain, one doesn't need permission to quote from Joyce's work. Um, there are a few copyright clearances um, which were easily forthcoming. I think we covered them all, although this was new to me. I'd never worked on a book which involved images. Um, many of them are public domain images, others uh, it, was, it was very gratifying, actually. I wanted to quote in full a wonderful poem by Clive James, so I contacted the Clive James estate, sadly, the late Clive James, and they said, yeah, sure, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, there were things we wanted to quote which we couldn't afford to quote, but that wasn't from, from Joyce, from other sources, and so one summarised rather than quoted from certain things, and I'm okay with that. Um, but I'd always rather read the original than some hack summary of an interesting original, but I did my best with that. Um, it couldn't have been written 10 years ago even. A, because a lot of this stuff wasn't on the internet for me to pillage and sit and use my scissors and paste on. B, because Stephen Joyce was an extremely obstructive and difficult man, um, by all accounts. Uh, he had a whim of iron, someone once said, in, when it came to charging eye-watering sums for anything, and he was quick to take offence, and he could sabotage, sabotage single-handedly any, any academic research. Um, it's hard to find anyone with a good word to say for him. I rather like the fella. I, I, I like what he said that he was a, he was a Joyce, not a Joycean, <laughs> which was and that was as far as any argument went. You couldn't you couldn't you know, object to his arbitrary decisions about whether or not you were allowed to use Joyce's material in your one man stage show or your film or your. Um, but he 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 didn't have a strong fan base, Stephen Joyce, um, and did seem utterly arbitrary in in making decisions about permissions. So it, it wasn't a problematic thing to assemble a book of oddments, fragments, bits and pieces. And my publisher was very helpful. Good. Uh, one more question, which is really what advice you would give to a reader who was approaching Ulysses for the first time? I'd almost suggest several ways in. Listen to a talking book, an audio book, or the brilliant RTE dramatisation, just to get the shape of it, find out what it's about. And then you read it properly to find out how it's done and what it's for. Does that make sense? You can't just go into Ulysses and read it. Most people give up. 
quite early on, before they even get to Leopold Bloom, which is a great pity because once you're with Bloom, it's fairly plain sailing. Bits of it are boring, and they're supposed to be because bits of life are boring. If something's interesting all the time, it's more likely to be a television game show than a novel. Yeah? I think also you have to up your game as a reader. Ulysses was written to create the type of reader who could read Ulysses, as someone else once said. You have to raise your bar as a reader. It's, it's not easy. Um, but it repays and repays multiply over the years. It's a book you can come back to every 10 years for your life, and it gets richer and better. Most of the books we read in our 20s, we don't reread in our 50s or 60s with any degree of insight or pleasure, it seems to me. you know. Although I'm coming back to Burgess for the first time since my 30s and discovering a whole bunch of new stuff, which is lovely. And I've just started rereading Earthly Powers for the first time. And it's really good. <laughs> it's really good um, and, and enjoyable. And I'll there are still one or two Burgesses that are off my radar that I'll have to get around to. Um, and uh, I'll, yeah, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I've lapsed in, in the Burgess uh, faith, rather, but I'm, I'm back in the fold now. But I would say to everyone, don't feel obliged to read Ulysses. If you're, if you're hesitating, read Dubliners instead. Dubliners, the greatest collection of short stories. You can read a story every day for 15 days, and it will be the best literary experience of your life. And Dubliners, as I get older, stands out more and more for me as the, as the great achievement of, of Joyce, because it's, it's, it's so heartfelt. It's got such an understanding of human nature. Um, and it's not fancy. It's not experimental, especially, although it's very trailblazing and groundbreaking. So my advice to anyone hesitating to read Ulysses is don't read Ulysses. Read, read Dubliners, and then maybe Portrait of the Artist, and then Ulysses. But I think people feel a weight of expectation when they, when they buy Ulysses, which is a bit like what I feel with Finnegan's Wake, if you see what I mean. It's, it's not a crime not to read Ulysses. <laughs> Your book, David, Multiple Choice, I'd recommend as an excellent way in uh, to the subject for, for anyone who is curious or indeed who, who knows it fairly well. Um, so many new things and, and treasures and uh, discoveries, pleasures along the way. Um, so thank you for the book and thank you for joining us on the Anthony Burgess podcast. Well, thank you. So this has been a real pleasure. Um, so thank you for having me. And um, I've missed the chance to plug my book. So thank you for plugging it also. You've been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Multiple Joyce by David Collard is out now from Sagging Meniscus Press. For more about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?